0: Hovering over the skies of a post Christian society, we have spotted a man with a donut in one hand and rosary beads in another. Child, I'm about to whoop Satan's behind. He is boldly proclaiming truth and reason like no rigid Catholic ever has before. The David L. Gray Show begins now. So you're not going crazy. If you if you were just here, and you saw me doing a live stream, um, you're, you're not going crazy. It's another live stream. I realized after the live stream that I was using the wrong mic, and I sounded like I was underwater. So I'm about to do the same thing over again, real quick. I'm about to teach the same class. So if you were here for the first class, <laughs> you don't have to stick around for period number two, right? So I'm just going to do the same thing, maybe even a little bit quicker. So uh, we're taking a look at Pope Benedict's book that he's he published post um, posthumously after his death. It is called what is Christianity. It is a quasi spiritual um, testament. So you've been hearing a lot of people talk about this book. Probably they've been talking about a section out of chapter five called Moral Theology, in which Pope Benedict XVI, she goes in on um, the gay seminaries, the Vatican's interest in the gay seminaries, how in some of these seminaries people were having sex, um, you can, you're allowed to have a boyfriend and, until you reach the major seminary. So, uh, you know, so that, that, that part has caught a whole lot of, of attention within the Catholic sphere for obvious reasons. Um, As I said in the last class, it's, it's not a whole lot of interest to me. I've been talking about the whole Skittle issue for about half a decade. People like Church Milton has been talking about it for over a decade. Everyone knows the Skittles. Everyone knows that we need inquisition in the Catholic church to get the Skittles out. Everyone knows that it's not news when everyone else is talking about the Masonic infiltration and all this whole thing. Um, we were telling people the real issue is the Skittles, is the gay guys, they're running the church, they're trying to change church teaching. So that's old news. What I did think is interesting is what I want to talk about here in in this video is a section in that same chapter in which Pope Benedict gives um, John Paul II flowers, um, roses for his contribution to the moral theology of the Catholic Church. And so I just really thought it's just like a really wonderful section of the book that I'm working through. And it piggybacks on a video I did earlier today, or yesterday, depending upon, I'm in Germany, it was yesterday, on um, how in the Catholic Church was, there was a lot of sickness in the Catholic Church before Vatican II. And so what we saw vatican ii in the post-conciliar documents was really just a coming up party of all that sickness and so these were the guys i, I made the point of video these were the guys that were going to the traditional lap mass wearing the cassocks so um so enough on that like if we just go back to a time where we just have the traditional Latin mass it will fix everything no um obviously not you don't put sick people in the surgery room um to fix something until you get them well, right? So uh you know, you don't do heart surgery on a guy that's having I don't know, a kidney issue, okay? He's he's just not well enough, right? So you have to fix other things first. So, kind of piggybacks on that piggyback on on that whole thing I want to talk about. So, and this is my second video I'm doing this week. I'm I meant to do a video, you now I try to do two videos a week and I was I was going to do a video on a mass nightmare that I found myself in in Mallorca, Spain. We went there last couple of weekends ago uh, for the Martin Luther King. You know, it was, it was a long weekend, you know, four day weekend. So we went to Mallorca, Spain, little island in Spain. And I found myself in the middle of my mass nightmare. It was bad, and I stayed because I didn't know what was going to happen next. And at one point in time, I take out my camera and I started videoing because I had to come back and I had to show you guys what I, what was going on. the The, the mass nightmares are everywhere. They're all around the world. They're even on a little island in Spain. So I pull out my camera, start recording a little bit, and my wife—you could probably hear on the video—you know she's trying to get me put the camera down. And so um, it, it was—it was crazy. But so um, so I'll eventually get to that video next week. But now let's—but let's get into this um, chapter five on moral theology in Pope Benedict's book that he that has recently come out that he wanted to be published only after he died. So let's get into that. So I'm going to read you this little section. It's about three paragraphs out of chapter five. And along the way, I'm just going to make some commentary to give some color and some context about what's going on. So if you're here again for the second class and you had a question or a comment, uh, feel free to... Make the comment or question again. So, um, for prosperity's sake, so we can stay on task here. All right, let me slide this one over here. All right. Uh, Michael, um, he didn't make the last class. Um, nice to have you talk about this. Um, I just don't believe that's doable. <laughs> Um, Brianna said, what was David doing? (laughs) Yeah. Thanks Brianna for uh, checking back in for a moment. All right. So, um, and hopefully, do I sound good? Do I sound like I'm underwater? Is the right mic working? Does everything sound good? Let me double check here. I'm I'm not going to do this three times. Okay. It looks like I have the right mic. Um, I had a stereo on, so... All right. <clears throat> so here we go. I'm in about the middle of the... About 25% of the way through of Chapter 5 of What is Christianity? A Quasi-Spiritual Testament by Pope Benedict XVI. We're in Chapter 5, Topics of Moral Theology. We're about 25% of the way through. So he says... Among the freedoms that the 1968 revolution wanted to conquer was also complete sexual freedom, which no longer tolerated any norms. So anytime you hear the word revolution after the Protestant revolution in the history of the world, you always have to, after the word revolution, you have to say attack the Catholic Church because that's what every revolution we've seen, starting with Protestantism, has done attack the Catholic Church from the American Revolution, French Revolution, the revolutions in Europe in 1848, the Bolshevik Revolution, the sexual revolution, now the Skittle Revolution. All revolutions do is attack the Catholic church. And that's what we saw in the sixties during a so-called sexual revolution, which Benedict here says tolerated, didn't tolerate any norms. And we still see the consequences of that today. He says the propensity to violence that characterized those years is closely linked to this spiritual collapse. In fact, projection was no longer allowed in aircraft. Screening of sexual films as violence broke out in small passenger airline communities. Since even excesses in dressing caused aggression, school principals tried to introduce school clothing that uh, could allow a climate of study. (laughs) Among the characteristics of the 1968 revolution is the fact that pedophilia was proclaimed as permissible. Inconvenience. In 1968, people talking about pedophilia is okay. At least for young people in the church, but not only for them. This was in many ways a difficult time. I've always wondered, Benedict says, how in this situation young people could go towards the priesthood and accept it with false consequences. The widespread collapse of priestly vocations in those years and a huge number of rever- resonations from the clerical state were consequences of all these processes of this sexual revolution which is a phenomenal thing for Benedict to state here so he's just giving some background of this point he's about to make about the um where the church was at this moment and I just think this is such a phenomenal phenomenal section again I know everyone wants to talk talk about the sexy. They want to talk about the 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 gay infiltration and, and that whole thing. But this section right here prefaces that. It, it, it leads up to that. And um, man, I think I think after I get done with my, I'm doing 39 talks right now in the Catechism of Catholic Church. You can check those out on my website, Saint Dominic's Media. I think they're really phenomenal talks I'm going through the catechism and I'm just doing some really rich um, theology Uh, but I think after I get done with that I might come back and do just a class of moral theology because I think Benedict just the historical context here he, he says that here in the second paragraph he says independently of this development so independently of this development with the sexual revolution in the same period there was a collapse of Catholic moral theology that rendered the church helpless in the face of those processes in society. So while the sexual revolution was going on within the church, not necessarily connected to that the Catholic Church was struggling with what is Catholic moral theology. Benedict is going to highlight that, and I'll read what he's going to say here. But just some background here. Um, we're talking about the 60s and 50s. Leading up to that, so many Catholic moral theologians, was a couple things were going on. You had a school of liberal Catholic theologians, not liberal politically, but liberally as far as the, we call them the liberal, liberal, Catholic theology. Basically, they wanted they, these guys have thought that we were doing theology all wrong. We were looking at Jesus. We, were, we kept looking at Jesus from a perspective of the rich, a perspective from top down. And so they want to look at Jesus another way. They want to look at him through the lenses of the poor. And that was a better way to look at Jesus. It was a little bit of liberation theology, some Marxism here. But they played a heavy influence on the new face of Catholic moral theology because they wanted to look at look at moral theology through scripture. Also, they wanted to get away from Aquinas and the Scholastics, their brand of moral theology, because they were all they were doing was looking at natural law. Um, so this is really a dangerous time in the Catholic Church. We're talking about moral theology you know, what's wrong, what's right, what's immoral, what's moral. And at this time, I think Catholics today were used to speaking about things that were being intrinsically evil. Um, when we look at abortion, we're looking like we're used to looking at the act itself. We know that slaughtering a child in the womb is always evil. That's that's just the common milieu today. That's just the, the modus operandi. <laughs> just 50 years ago, 60 years ago, that's not the case. So this is a really dangerous time that Benedict is about the narrate here. So look, listen to his outline of this time. He says... I try to outline very briefly this development and this dynamic of what's going on in in Catholic moral theology while the sexual revolution was going on and why the Catholic Church could not even respond to it because we don't even know what's moral and immoral. So we can't respond to people who are talking about contraception and all these things because we don't know. So there's a war going. So while there's a sexual revolution going on, there's another revolution going on inside the Catholic Church dealing with moral theology that, that we'll see um, Pope John Paul II try to resolve Veritas Splendor, but it doesn't settle the issue and it points to the issue that we're in today with Catholic moral theology um, being challenged at its core. So he says, I try to outline very briefly this development in this dynamic. Um, Until Vatican II, Catholic moral theology was largely founded in natural law. While scripture, sacred scripture, he says, was only used as a backdrop or support. So, the the natural law basis of looking at moral theology coming from the scholastics Aquinas and these guys that was that was how that's how Catholics understood more that's how we uh, that's how we that, that was our basis for understanding moral theology um, we were only using scripture just to support that stuff um, or as a backdrop it was it wasn't the first principle natural law was the first principle. Uh, not divine revelation, but just the natural law, what's on a man's heart, which, which is very interesting, but it lasted for, um, what, we're talking about 1300s, we're talking about what, 700 years, I mean, or 600, 700 years. In the, and Benedict says, in a struggle waged by the council for a new understanding of revelation, the natural law option was almost completely abandoned, and a moral theology completely based on the Bible was claimed. He says, I still remember how the Jesuit faculty of Frankfurt, Germany, prepared a very gifted young father, Bruno Schuller, for the elaboration of a morality completely based on scripture. So, the School of Theology, uh, the Jesuit faculty at uh, the University of Frankfurt, they're training a young theologian, Bruno Schuller, to develop a moral theology, to elaborate upon it based upon a Protestant idea of Sola Scriptura. That's where we're at. We're completely throwing the natural law, the baby out with the bathwater, so they say, and we're moving in a completely different direction. He says, Father Schuller's beautiful dissertation shows the first step in the elaboration of a morality based completely upon scripture. Father Schuller was then sent to the United States to continue his studies and return with the awareness that it was not possible (laughs) to systematically elaborate on a morality only from scripture. So Schuler comes to the United States or I'm in Germany now. So he's sent to the United States. Um, and um, you know, he's sitting down with the, the Protestants who are, you know, they have, they have an understanding of morality through scripture. So Schuler sits down with them. He spends some time, he writes and he comes to the conclusion that there's no axioms in scripture alone. We, we cannot develop a morality based upon scripture alone because it's, it's just not there. It's not connecting. Um, you still need the magisterium um, piece to do that. So it can't be scripture alone. So Schuller realized that. And he says um, he subsequently tried, subsequently tried to elaborate a moral theology that proceeded in a more pragmatic way but failed to provide an answer to the crisis of morality. So even Schuller, who was working on just a solo Scriptura response, um, a, a way to develop Catholic morality that's detached from natural law of the scholastics, even he couldn't use the Bible alone to respond to the sexual revolution. Um, So, this is scary stuff, if you think about it. Um, The Catholic Church is dabbling in the Jesuits. They're dabbling in Sola Scriptura. And I think the Jesuits still are, when you look at people like James Martin He'll go to scripture alone, try to justify, you know, illegal immigration, homosexuality, you know, and you know, his, his view is detached from the magisterium and natural law. So it's still alive and well with the Jesuits. <clears throat> Benedict then goes on to say in the third paragraph here, finally, the thesis that morality should be defined only on the basis of the aims, the aims, what he means by aims is intention, uh, the ends, the consequences. So finally, the thesis that morality should be defined only on the basis of the aims of the Catholic action was widely affirmed. Everyone thinking this is okay. He says that old adage, the unjustified means, they're, they're not using that. He says it was not reiterated in its crude form. And yet the conception contained in it had become decisive. So first you have the school of Jesuits trying to develop this new moral theology based on scripture alone. That didn't work. Now they're saying, well, okay, let's go with the, um, the idea of um, proportionalism proportionalism is the, the theological word of moral theology. That we don't look at the action itself to determine whether something is moral or immoral, but we look at the two other factors in moral theology. That is circumstances and intention. So you got three parts of moral theology, three things we look at. We look at the act itself. We look at the intention of the act. And we look at the the, the consequences of the, or I'm sorry, the circumstances and the intention. The circumstances and the intention. Those are the three parts. Action, circumstances, intention. All right. So the action, stealing the bread. You know, you walk into a store, you steal the bread. Um, the circumstances of the acts, well, was the store closed? Was it open? You know, tell me about the circumstances, you know, uh, w- uh, how it happened. Third was the, the ends, you know, why, why did you do that? Um, was it to feed your starving child or was it just because you were hungry at the moment, didn't have any money? So, um, so the new school of thoughts at this time wanted to drop the act itself. And they wanted to look at these two other things, the circumstances and attention to determine whether something was moral or immoral. That's scary. That's proportionalism, okay? Um, And Benedict says here, that had become decisive. That's where the church was headed. He goes on, therefore, there could not even be something absolutely good or something absolutely evil. If you're only looking at circumstances and intention. It depends. It depends, you know. You got an abortion? What is the circumstances? What is the intention? Killed somebody? Uh, what's the circumstances? What's the intention? Robbed the bank? Uh, tell me what's your circumstances, the intention. This is where the Catholic Church is headed and why Pope Benedict XVI is about to give john paul ii flowers for veritas splendor and really set it up to say that veritas splendor if not for that if not for john paul and that cyclical (laughs) the catholic church is lost Um, the gates of hell is prevailing against it but it continues yeah so therefore there could be not something absolutely good or something absolutely evil in this idea That the ends justify the means. So there was no longer good. But only what was relatively better at the moment, depending upon circumstances. He says in the late 80s and 90s, the crisis of the foundation and presentation of Catholic morality reached dramatic forms. So this is why you see a lot of goofy stuff happening in the Catholic Church in the 80s and the 90s, such as the things he's going to get to, such as the. The skittle seminaries, the orgies in these Catholic seminaries, the gay bathhouses, all that stuff, because Catholic, moral, Catholic morality is in a flux. We don't know what's right or wrong, so you have people telling these seminarians, "Yeah, hey, you can have a boyfriend," um, you know, until you know you're closer to becoming priesthood, um, because you know, it was, you know, it's the circumstances, it's the intention. In the late 80s and 90s, Benedict says, the crisis and foundation and presentation of cat morality reached dramatic forms. On January 5th, 1989, the Cologne Declaration, signed by 15 Catholic professors of theology, was published, focusing on several critical points of the relationship between the Episcopal Magisterium and a task of theology. All right. So, Um, what we're talking about here is the relationship between um, the theologian and the magisterium. All right. Um, And there was a document that was eventually published. Let me get the name of it. That's called? all oh, right I think that's what it's called. The Ecclesiastical Magisterium and the Theologian, I believe. And you know, I think that was published by oh, that was Pope Paul VI. So that's a foundational document. But Um, looks to be some movement away from that because the Cologne Declaration with these 15 professors of theology, um, they were trying to redefine several points between the Episcopal Magisterium and the task of the the theologian. So the theologian, according to church teaching, um, is not the, the... The role of the theologian is only to work within the limits of the magisterium so the theologian works within here okay the theologian can even push against the the edge of the you know the line that was established by the you know the the compass whatever the theologian can push with his imagination but the theologian always has to stay within here of these limits defined by the magisterium because the magisterium is the teacher they define the limits if this is dogma, the the, the theologian cannot go outside the dogma. The theologian is not the first principle in what the church believes. The theologian just explains, the theologian argues, the theologian debates, Um, and the theologian, um, once they debate and argue enough, they can get to a point where the magisterium defines. Once once the, the magisterium defines, the issue is settled. Right? But the clone theologians, what they wanted to do is they wanted They wanted more influence and and power. They don't say, well, we're we're the ones that should be shaping um, what the church believes, what the church teaches. We should be the shapers of the dogma, right? So so clearly, and Benedict says clearly, uh, their protests gathered in a clearly visible and audible way. For the potential opposition that was mounting throughout the world against the expected magisterial text of John Paul II. So the world knows, kind of like they knew about humane vitae, right? That is coming. Um, The church is about to settle the issue of moral theology. That is not the ends justify the means, it's not proportionalism. And so the theologians are, you know, they're pushing against this idea. Pope Benedict XVI says here, and I think this is the fourth paragraph that we're looking at. It says, John Paul knew very well the situation of moral theology and followed it very carefully. Ordered that the work be on an encyclical that could put these orders in, these points in order. It was published under the title Veritas Splendor on August 6, 1993, provoking violent reactions from moral theologians, violent reactions from moral theologians. So you have to understand that there's a wave, there's a movement in a Catholic church of evil that these moral theologians want to basically say that nothing's true. And when they read Veritas Splendor and they saw the word intrinsically evil, that there are actions that are always evil, no matter what, that was a tipping point. (laughs) You have to see Satan at work here. If Satan can convince the world that nothing is intrinsically evil, that it all depends. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. I mean, that's the post-truth society that we live in now. I mean, outside the Catholic Church, I mean, outside of our dogma, that's the world we live in. Nothing is absolutely true. Nothing. I mean, and and that's and this. You have moral theologians in the Catholic Church wanting that to be the fact of the case. So, but so that's Veritas Splendor. He's getting to now. He's he's starting to give Pope John Paul II his flowers, which is amazing. Here, we can say what we want to about Saint John Paul II, the weird things he did, his Pachamama moment. Um, kissing the Quran, maybe weird stuff, but if not for Veritas Splendor game over, game over, um, Veritas Splendor. You cannot really read Veritas Splendor unless you read his apostolic letter, which he published in 1987. It was called Spiritus Domini, Spirit of the Lord. So that really set up. So that's kind of how they knew what was coming. They read Veritas Vendor. That was Pope John Paul II's, you know, first when he stro- uh, drew first blood. So that's how they know was coming, right? You know, they see working documents and, and stuff like that. So, and we have to remember that we're we're still we're living at a time where a lot of things have been abandoned. There used to be a time where Catholic morality was taught in school just just by the Ten Commandments. That's not going on anymore. So that's out the window. Um, um, the natural law, like I said, that had been with the scholastics for about 700 years or so. That's gone. No, no one's using that. Um, so in a beautiful thing about Veritas Splendor, make sure, you know, you get a chance to read it in your own time. Like I said, I'll try to do a class on this in the future the beautiful thing about Veritas Splendor is that Pope John Paul II is that if you ever read John Paul II, you know, the guy understands scripture very well. He's not on board with um, Schuler in this method of scripture alone, but he, he understands the value of scripture. He also understands the value of natural law, but he wants to reinforce the role in the magisterium. So, he does the beautiful thing he does in Veritas Splendor. If you read Veritas Splendor, so much scripture. So he elevates scripture in in the moral Catholic moral law. He, you know, which is amazing, because he brings in divine revelation <laughs> into Catholic morality and moral theology, whereas before it's just this natural law thing, which is still kind of, you know, sort of flaky in a sense because it's just what's on a man's heart. You know, comes from God, but um, uh, what's the relationship between that and divine revelation? So in Veritas Splendor, he elevates divine revelation, has natural law there, but then it's the magisterium in Veritas Splendor, which is the source of um, under uh, of, of of interpreting that. And then, like I said, he inserts the words intrinsically evil, okay, and, and reinforces the fact that the ends do not justify. The means, so and then here Pope Benedict XVI he comments. He says previously there had been in the Catechism Catholic Church, uh, so a Catholic Catechism Catholic Church comes out in nineteen ninety three, so we had that, and he says that has systematically and convincingly exposed the morals taught by the Church. And Benedict here says something funny. He says, "I cannot forget Franz Franz Bockel, one of the leading German-speaking moral theologians, who had be- also become professor emeritus, had retired to his Swiss homeland. In view of the possible decisions of Veritas Splendor, declared that if the encyclical had decided that there are actions that must always." and in all circumstances be considered evil against this, he would have raised his voice with all the strength he had. So this is a heavyweight, this French vocal Heavyweight in moral theology in Europe. And, um, but Benedict says, he said, the good Lord spared him (laughs) his realization of his purpose (laughs) because vocal died on July 8th, 1991. And a cyclical came out in August 6, 1993, in effect, contained that statement that there are always actions intrinsically evil that can never become good. So, no, yeah, that was funny. So, um, but you know, again, those are the heavyweights that you had in Catholic moral theology in the Catholic Church that are like, no, no, there's no such thing as things that are intrinsically evil. What? No. Pope Benedict XVI continues in his this book published um, posthum. I just completely lost the word. After his death, posthumously. Um, what is Christianity? Um, quasi-spiritual testament. He continues here in chapter 5. The Pope, talking about John Paul II, was fully aware of of the weight of his decision at the time. So John Paul II wasn't a coward. He didn't back down. He knew that this was a deal breaker in the Catholic Church. He knew this encyclical was going to be divisive. He pushed on. And precisely because of this part of his writing, he had once again consulted experts of the highest level who had not themselves participated in the drafting of the (coughs) encyclical. Excuse me. There cannot and should not be any doubt that morality based on the principle of balancing goods must respect a final limit. There are goods they're not subject to balancing. There are values that it is never listed to sacrifice in the name of even a higher value and that are above even the preservation of physical life. And in this last section, he goes on and talks about martyrdom, for example, being a high, a high good. Martyrdom is a fundamental category of Christian existence a life that was preserved on the price of denying God, a life based on a last lie is a non-life. So if you live a life that was preserved at the price of denying God, that's a life based on a last lie. And that's a non-life. That's always a life that that's always, um, that's just objectively um, a life that we can't say was there was any good. Versus martyrdom. That is, it is basically no longer moral, morally in a theory of that was advocated by Boko and many others, that martyrdom was a good martyrdom. <clears throat> Boko will say, well, let's let's think about it. What was the circumstances? <laughs> what was the intention? So it, And so Benedict is saying here, if if we don't hold fast and say that martyrdom is always a good, then what's the value of Christianity? What's the value of imitating any saints? What's the value of imitating Christ at the cross? And so here he says, he ends here. And I think I'll end here in this section, in, in this reading today on Benedict. He says, it is necessary to show that the very essence of Christianity is at stake here. Boom. He gives John Paul II, St. John Paul II, so many flowers and kudos here. And I just don't think that we value the contribution of Veritas Splendor enough that it came along at a time in the Catholic Church that if it doesn't come along, <sighs> the Catholic Church is lost. Moral theology is lost. It was already in a flux. We had already lost three or four decades flaking out. We couldn't even respond to the sexual revolution. Um, so much had been lost in those years. Uh and so, if if John, you know, John Paul II again, so many contributions. Um, then the Catechism, the Canon Law, Benedict is there is there to reinforce Freemasonry. Um, is still part of the Church's teaching, even though it's not mentioned in Canon Law. John Paul II comes along time. He makes excuse me, so many contributions that if if he doesn't make them, who knows where the Catholic Church? we, we see how bad it is in the Catholic Church today we could have gotten to this point um licitly right um a long time ago like all, all the evil that's going on now is like illicit right it's people winking at church teaching doing another thing but there was a time in the Catholic Church if John Paul doesn't publish Veritas Splendor or um uh, Spiritus in Domini, Spiritus Domini, man so, I, I just think it's so cool that Benedict XVI, in his quasi-spiritual testimony, gives John Paul II these kudos. Uh, very impressive. So, I like what I read so far in this book. <clears throat> and uh, th- there's so much, as, as I'm reading this book, I just see so much like rich theology That again, I may, if I see something like super interesting like this, I'll come back on again. We'll talk about it. We'll do the work. Um, uh, You know, why everyone else is, you know, so fascinated about, you know, Benedict, you know, what he said about Francis or what he said about Skittles, you know. Again, That's interesting stuff. But the bulk of the book is just theology, not on like a deep level. But like like on a high cursory level like some commentary that he's making and so i just think that's the, the neatest thing about the book and, and uh, um hopefully when it comes out in english uh, more people i think more english-speaking people will have opportunity to really get in here and read it so um i'm gonna get out of here I've been here for 42 minutes let me get out of here it's two thirty two here in germany now so You can tell by my voice I'm tired. This is the second time I've done this show because the first time the audio was horrible. I couldn't let that stick there. All right, let me get to your comments. And we're out of (laughs) here. Michael says, keep drinking water also. (laughs) Uh, Thanks, Lane, for sharing. I appreciate that. Um, Cindy B. says, I sh- need to share something disturbing with you. I need suggestions on how to stop Superville from doing this. Just watch the video from Nairs on YouTube. Shocking, disgusting. Do you have an email? Yeah, you can email. If you're still here, just email me at my name, David at DavidLGray.info so, or just go to DavidLGray.info DavidLGray.info Go to About Me and my email address is there. Interesting. I, I, I went to Started my graduate work at Steubenville, so as time goes on, it becomes Stupidville. You know, which is sad. Just, yeah, Jesse, they don't know how to handle contraceptives. Yeah, the sixties were no, it was yes, it was amazing. That that was a big question. or right, is contraception, you know, what's the what's the circumstances? what's the intention? And you still hear a little bit of it's floating around today. You do. Um, yeah. Jack mentions the Pachamama moment. All right. Yeah. Th- th- there's like, there's so many things you could point to the life of John Paul II and be like, dude, you're like, you're like Pope Francis the first. All right. Uh, but at the same time, phenomenal contributions. We just have to say, despite of some of the things that he did, God used John Paul II as a, door, as, a as, as a locked door to so much We just take for granted. <laughs> how hard Satan was knocking on the door of the Catholic Church in the 50s and 60s and 70s and 80s. Unless you just, like, really get deep in history at that time and see all of the machinations going on, you can't really appreciate John Paul II and his papacy and what he did. Um, So, Yeah at the same time yeah we do we do a knowledge at the same time yeah he did, he did some weird stuff so <clears throat> oh ken, thanks ken for joining the channel um if you don't know if you join my channel i have most of my archive shows as member only right so i've been on youtube since 2012 so unless um some something i published, my content was viral unless it was an interview um all my older content is behind a paywall now so um so i just do that to people who want to join the channel have some have something there have some perks so it's pretty cool so i appreciate it appreciate the support thanks ken Anything else here? Oh, Cindy's here. Great. Oh, email. It. All right, boys and girls. Um, let's see. AC dropped in. If we believe in Holy Catholic Church, I'm sorry, Church, why are none of their writings in the Bible? I mean, if we believe in the Holy Catholic Church, why are none of their writings in the Bible? I mean, hmm, I don't really understand that question. Not really related to this show, but. Email me AC. Um, maybe we can have a conversation about that. Don't understand your question. The uh, yeah, said, "I enjoy you when you're on Father. Yeah, I really like going on Grace Force. That, yeah, that, that's always a fun show. And you know, nowadays when you see me on there, it's about this time. So it's like two, one or two in the morning in Germany while I'm on there. So, <laughs> uh, so yeah, that's a good time. All right, let me get out here. Uh, peace out, boy girls, boy scouts, girl scouts. Thanks for being my friends. I love you all. Um, I probably won't have another show this week, but I will be putting out some shorts. So check out my shorts. Appreciate it. Please like, share, subscribe, all that good stuff. And thanks for tuning in. And I will see you on the next time. Keep me in my prayers. Keep me in your prayers. And I'll definitely keep you in mind. God bless.